All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. And so from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. A Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought, it, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as we consider this narrative, we pray, as always, for insight and understanding on who you are and who we are and the kind of relationship you're calling us into with you, with ourselves, and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are glad that you are all here with us again today. It's great to see you. And uh, as uh, Alex mentioned, uh, we are thankful that Nick is getting a little break today after a, a long time we've had together through this pandemic. Glad the family is headed south for a little bit. So Nick, if you're watching, and I know he was for 9 a.m. watching on an airplane, which is amazing that you can be in worship at Avenue Hope on an airplane, but that was pretty cool. Anyway, Nick, we are thankful that uh, you're getting a little break today. Jerry, also want to thank you for doing the three questions today, and just again, want to second your comments that we stand together with our brothers and sisters in the Asian community who are experiencing this uh, this of terrorism is the only way to, to, to really describe it. And so we are together in this with you and uh, all of those in our Asian community here at part of, as part of Advent Hope. Now, we are in the last two weeks of our winter series on equality. Uh, next week, we will be hearing from our friend Claudia Allen, who's going to be joining us to talk about that classic equality text, in Galatians chapter 3. Today, though, we are looking at the theme of economic equality. Now, this subject can be the most controversy of all the equality uh, topics in the Bible. You know, you might embrace uh, gender equality or ethnic equality or really any other form of equality, but when it comes to economic equality, even the most liberal and progressive Christians uh, can get really disturbed at, at this topic. I uh, was hearing from a colleague saying that uh, whenever uh, they bring up the issue of economic inequality, that's the thing that gets people most disturbed in the church. And so we'll buckle our seatbelts as we talk about this subject, subject today. But while we get disturbed, meanwhile, economic inequality is at an epidemic level in much of the world. Consider this abstract from the chapter Christianity and Inequality in the Modern United States from the fantastic book Faith, Finance, and Economy. And by the way, that's a downloadable free book. It's full of scholars on the subject. Uh, Faith, Finance, and Economy. And we're looking at the chapter Christianity and Inequality in the Modern United States, where author Heath Carter writes this. And I think Levi has these this up on the screen. This is an extended... Uh, passage I want you to be able to follow along. Levi, do you have those, uh, those words for us? Again, this is author Heath Carter. I'm going to just start reading and Levi's going to catch up with me. He says this, 
we are living through what many experts are calling a new gilded age, an era that is nothing short of historic when it comes to inequality. Its contours can be measured in a variety of ways. Consider, for example, that in 1973, great year, vintage year, that's the year I was born, consider, for example, that in 1973, the top 1% of American earners boasted just 9.2% of all income, but today they command fully 21%. One has to go all the way back to the late 1920s, just prior to the Great Depression, to find comparable numbers. But the nation's wealth gap is arguably even more striking. An Institute for Policy Studies report found that as of 2017, the three wealthiest Americans, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Buffett, owned more wealth than the entire bottom half of the American population combined, a total of 160 million or 63 million households. And that number has only increased, by the, by the way. Uh, now, one common response, uh, the author says, to such statistics is to stress their relativity. Sure, there may be a widening gap between rich and poor in the United States, but even the poor here are rich by global standards, but this perspective may lead some to underestimate the existence of real and in some cases outright lethal suffering right here in the land of plenty. In Chicago, life expectancy varies by more than 15 years depending on one census tract, with a range extending from 83.3 years on the north side of Chicago where household incomes exceed $77,000 per year to just 68.2 years in West Garfield Park, where household income is just under $24,000 a year. Between the extremes, wage stagnation is pervasive. With middle-income workers, real wages increasingly increasing only 0.2% per year over the last 40 years, even as low-wage workers have seen a 5% decline in their real wages over the same period. Wow, that's the stark reality. And so what has happened that Christianity is at best not vigorously enough speaking out against this obscene economic inequality in society and at worst, completely complicit in it. Now, you know this already. I am not an economist. We have very smart people in the Advent Hope community, very smart uh, financiers and and an economist or two, I am not one of them. But the Bible does have plenty to say about economic justice that we've got to deal with if we are going to be consistent in our ethics and true to being a follower of Jesus. And so a starting point for our conversation or any Christian conversation on this topic uh, goes back to the text of emphasis we read today, uh, where we have an exhibit of the model community that Jesus developed in, and, uh, and grew in the aftermath of his sacrificial death and resurrection. And again, it's described in our text of emphasis. And we note there uh, a couple important things that jump out immediately about economic inequality and that newborn community. First of all, participation in their, in their, uh, their method of solving economic inequality was voluntary. Uh, in fact, we're, we're told that people were inspired and they brought, but it, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't mandated. 
And uh, if you keep reading in the next portion, the next uh, text in the passage, we actually read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We didn't read that today. You can read that later. But uh, basically, they pretended to participate in this system of economic equality without actually following through. And so they were trying to get all the social benefits of participation or spiritual benefits without actually uh, participating and, and sacrificing anyway. And so this is a volunteer. Peter specifically asked him, why, why would you do this? This is voluntary. Why did you volunteer and not, not follow through? And so the system was voluntary. You were invited to participate in working toward economic equality for everyone. This system was installed that everyone would be treated equitably. Funds were uh, distributed based on need. It specifically says that in the text. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, maybe the most radical aspect of this. Nothing was thought of as someone's own property. They had a biblical sense of stewardship. If, if they owned something, which many of them did, in this case it was property, they thought of themselves as stewards of the property, that this was really God's, and God had made them stewards over that, that, and so when it was needed, it was to be shared through the community, and they had no problem bringing those elements or the funds from their sales and put at the apostles' feet, we're told. The implication is the, the apostles then were to determine how the funds should be distributed. And so they knew what it meant to be a steward and treated the property that they had oversight over as God's property that was to be shared for the benefit of anyone. And so some incredibly important lessons we learned from this newborn church. And so at the minimum, the proto-Christian community teaches us that followers of Jesus should be thoughtful about what is happening economically to our brothers and sisters in faith. But the more liberal view is that the newborn church teaches us that we should be thoughtful not just about Christians, but about all humans as brothers and sisters in humanity when it comes to this issue of economic equality. The beautiful description of the generosity of the first church in Acts leads us then to our main question to wrestle with today, and that is, with that beautiful picture in mind, why aren't Christians today speaking out more about economic inequality? Why aren't we speaking? Why, don't, why aren't Christians leading the way when it comes to this issue of this obscene inequality when, we, when, we, when it comes to economics in this broken world, and specifically even here in this uh, country? Now, as always, when we pose these questions, there are a lot of potential responses. And uh, so I have three. You know, I like to bring three to you. So I have three responses to this, uh, to this question of why aren't Christians speaking out more about economic inequality? And so, first one, I'm going to be honest here. Western Christian culture has embraced individual, individualism at the expense of the collective. We are steeped in the idea of the individual over the collective. Uh, consider this, an approach, this is a description of individualism, an approach to social and ethical theory that suggests that the locus of decision and action lies in the individual human person and that people derive their personal identities from the choices that they make as individuals more than from the groups or communities in which they participate. 
Modern individualism has its roots in the Renaissance, which elevated the place of humans in the cosmos. The Reformation, which was <laughs> a, a, a religious uh, awakening. The Re Reformation, which viewed salvation as personally experienced together with a concept of direct access of each person to God, and the Enlightenment, which, which elevated autonomous reason, individuals' rights, and the pursuit of personal happiness, as well as the idea that society is a conglomerate of individuals knitted together by a social contract. All of this promotes the idea of the individual. And then, of course, you have that, that, that theological supposition that we, that we love, free will, that we have the individual opportunity to make a choice and that we live in an individual relationship with God. And so all of these elements certainly have, have truth to them. We wouldn't want to lose any one of them. But when you emphasize the individual above the collective, and that has been what has happened for most Christians, we have embraced the idea of individualism at the expense of the collective, at the expense of the community. And so a holistic view is, yes, we are individuals. Yes, we have a personal relationship with God, and we have a personal relationship with each other, but we are also part of a community. It is impossible, impossible to read the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, and not get the absolute overwhelming idea that we are in this thing, uh, in this broken world, as a community. We are not individuals, lone rangers, all out there on ourselves. And so when we focus only on the individual, we are missing out what God is calling us to be as people of community, as a collective working together. And yet, contemporary Western Christianity has really embraced the idea of individualism, that we are on this, uh, in this on our own, and uh, that leaves us in an awful space when it comes to economic inequality. Okay, so secondly, we're wrestling. Why, why have Christians kind of been out of this conversation? We haven't, and we're talking generally now, we haven't, as Christians, we haven't thoroughly reflected on the relationship between economic systems and Christianity. That's not to say some of you haven't thought about this. That's not to say there aren't people like the author of, our, of the passage that we just read who aren't thinking about these things. But generally, we haven't really been that reflective on the relationship between economic systems and Christianity. You know, we have all these different kinds of economic systems. You know, primarily here in this country, we almost worship capitalism, but then people throw around socialism. In fact, in some circles, if you want to you know, call someone a bad name, you say you're, you're socialist. And so we have capitalists and we have socialists and we throw around these economic system names, but we really haven't reflected on whether any of them accurately reflect how we should exist as Christians. And so this means that we tend to adopt the uh, support for the status quo, or we fall into the little camps that we know already exists, capitalism, uh, socialism, or whatever, you name whatever economic system, without really being reflective and, and, and questioning and being thoughtful about how any of these systems correspond with what we are taught in the Bible and what that newborn church exemplifies. And so in America, we fall in the status quo of capitalism, and we assume there are those who are just overtly capitalists and just think capitalism and Christianity go hand in hand. And look, there are some great things about capitalism, some important things about capitalism, but we, we have to be thoughtful and reflective on whether as a, a package that or any 
of the systems that we know really reflect what Jesus is calling to us to as a collective. By the way, my, my favorite book that I've read this year, you know, have a, a goal for how many books to read each year, and so I'm, I'm on track so far. And uh, so my favorite book this year is, get ready, The Cartoon Guide, because that's what I needed when it came to uh, economics. I need a cartoon guide. The Cartoon Guide to Hypercapitalism. Funny, hilarious, informative, challenging, definitely on my, my top list so far. So Cartoon Guide to Hypercapitalism. We have to be reflective on the systems in which the secular world are, are using and uh, see how they correspond with what we are taught in the Bible about living in community. Finally, finally, as we reflect on this question, why aren't Christians more engaged in this conversation? Why aren't we, 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 we bringing uh, all eyes on this issue of economic inequality? Again, I think if we're honest, for many of us as, individ- as individuals now, we privately kind of idolize wealth. Nobody wants to speak out about obscene wealth because secretly, we kind of idolize it. We kind of wish that we had it. I mean, what, don't, don't you want to you know, sit on your pile of money somewhere? Uh, you, the, the lure of Bezos-type wealth is pretty compelling, and we dream of winning the lottery or starting the next you know, mega startup that is going to make us wealthy beyond uh, all measure. Now, of course, we have you know, our visions of how we're going to give our tithe and we're going to give our offering, but still, in the back of our minds, the idea of sitting on the pile of gold is pretty intriguing. And so we idolize a wealth. <laughs> we, we wish we, we had it, and so we're not as, we're not as uh, compelled to speak out about it because there's somewhere in our heart we really wish we had it. And so... Christians have been just as complicit in economic inequality as anyone else in the world. That's the sad truth. And so how then do we overcome our, our, our nature to, to, to be engaged in systems that promote economic inequality? Uh, how do we overcome those and push for equality? That's, that's the real question. Like, how do we move beyond these issues that, uh, that compel us to not speak out? and to not do what we should to be moving for equality. What, 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 what can happen? What, what do we need to do? And so the traditional human response is through a government oversight and legislation and uh, regulation. We vote people, we believe, who are going to work toward fixing these issues of inequality. And uh, while voting is important, we all just did it a couple months ago, and our government officials should be working on these issues how shameful it is for Christians that we have to be compelled by the government to support economic equality. So we can't just vote people and then wait for them to, to get it figured out. Uh, that's, that's shameful. We should be leading the way when it comes toward equality, especially economic equality that is spoken of uh, so, in, in so many ways throughout the Bible. We should be leading the pack on this one. And so uh, ultimately... Our, our, our mentality of voting and getting government officials is, is a, a good one, and we should be definitely voting for people and hoping people get in office. But we also need heart change and transformation so that we are working for this on our own as well. Followers of Jesus need conviction on this matter. We need to be stirred in heart and mind until we are upset and disturbed by the pervasive inequality 
that is around us. And we certainly should be as, as disturbed about it as uh, the politicians and, and, and social activists. This matters. By the way, when it went back to the real golden age, the original golden, uh, Gilded Age uh, back in the 20s, it was indeed Christians, Christian organizations who pushed to end that time of extreme inequality. And so we've done it before. <laughs> we can do it again. But we need a heart change ourselves. And so that leads us to Jesus. And so let's start with what Jesus has to say about uh, all of this. Consider Jesus' very first sermon. It's found in Luke chapter 4. And uh, what we want to look today at uh, today comes in verse 16. By the way, this was such a sermon that uh, afterwards Jesus was taken out to be thrown off a cliff. Fortunately, that didn't happen, but I mean, that's some serious preaching when the congregation is like, we got to throw him off a cliff afterwards. Anyway, Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, Jesus, it, it says this about Jesus. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, went to his hometown church first time. His mom was on the front row, we can imagine, excited to hear him preach. And so he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And so he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, and this is a quote from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the year of Jubilee. And so Jesus, given his first opportunity to preach at his hometown church with his mom on the front row, what was his message? He is bringing good news to the disenfranchised and to those who have been mistreated by economic inequality, to the poor. He made it clear that he came to proclaim good news to the poor. This wasn't, again, just good news for the future. Sometimes when we think good news, it gets, God is coming to tell us about the good news, about when Jesus comes back the second time, and everything will be made new. No, 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 no. Jesus was talking about good news then, because he was announcing the year of Jubilee. And by the way, the year of Jubilee was great news especially for the poor, because jubilee meant that debts were to be forgiven and land that was owned but had been sold maybe because of, uh, of, of, of debt that needed to be paid, the land was returned to the original owner. And so if you were, if you were poor or you had been treated uh, uh, with economic injustice, the year of jubilee was fantastic. And so Jesus, when he gets up to preach his very first sermon in his hometown church, this is what he was speaking about because Jesus cares about economic inequality. In Matthew chapter 11, again, uh, we read that when John, Jesus' cousin, was in prison, heard about the deeds of the anointed one, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Because Jesus was doing some things a little different than John was imagining, so he was a little confused, wanted to make sure he, he had, he, he had uh, he followed the the, the, the right party. And so he asked Jesus, are you the one to come or is there someone else? And so Jesus replied to those disciples, go back and report to my cousin what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. 
Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. He had to say that. He had to say that, especially when he got to the issue of the poor. I have come to proclaim good news to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. Don't stumble over this. This is what I'm here for. I'm here to, to proclaim equality, economic equality. To, this is good news. The year of Jubilee is here for the poor. And so Jesus announced good news to the poor and spoke out about the plight of those who were economically disadvantaged and also made it clear that uh, there were inherent challenges to being rich and being part of the kingdom. And this is where things get really challenged and, and Christians, especially in the Western world, many of them who um, are doing okay for themselves that really get very, very nervous when Jesus starts talking about the rich. I mean, it's one thing when you talk about the poor and how they should, they, they should experience jubilee, but Jesus doesn't mess around when he's talking about uh, the rich. Mark 10, verse 23, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were, were told, astonished. They were amazed at Jesus' words because they imagined that if you were rich, that meant you were blessed. Don't we think that too? You know, you get the, they get the, the bonus check in the mail. You, what do you, what, oh, I'm blessed. Jesus is like, hold on uh, uh, now. Uh, and so the disciples were, were amazed at the words that Jesus was challenging the idea that, that uh, being wealthy, that that was a blessing. But Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I've heard this text explained away in a thousand different ways, trying to, 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 to change what Jesus said. But the example of the newborn church is that if wealth is hoarded for self, that is just not part of what the Christian community is about, and certainly not part of what the disciple of Jesus is about. If you're hoarding wealth for oneself, that isn't Christian. Jesus' brother, you know, sometimes our, our brothers, they're even more blunt than we are. Uh, think about what Jesus' brother says in James chapter uh, 5. James 5 says this, Now listen, you rich, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Wow. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Wow, James. He goes on to say, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. It's brutal language. And so it's just impossible to get around the fact that Christianity is rooted in the principle of economic equality, and that the early Christians would have been just as disturbed as we should be by the fact that the statistics show wild wage disparity between rich and poor, not only in this country, but around the world. What's happening when it comes to economic inequality is a travesty, 
And Jesus' example, Jesus' words tell us we should be speaking out about this. And so because of Jesus' actions, both as a teacher of economic equality, but even more so because of his death and resurrection, we have hope that we can experience the transformation we need to become advocates for those who are experiencing economic disadvantages. We should be advocates for the broken in this world, for the poor in this world, for those who have been disadvantaged. You know, God's plan is that everyone is privileged. That is the plan of the kingdom. Everyone experiences privilege, not just one because they work in a particular field. I mean, that's how it works right now. If you work in a particular field, you, 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 or, or several fields, you, 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 your, your, uh, your salary is, is more than those who may be working the same amount of time, maybe working the same amount of energy, of energy maybe even working more. There's, there's disparity, and this is not what the kingdom is supposed to be about. Consider the change that God wants to do in our hearts. This is 2 Corinthians, Apostle Paul talking about this issue. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also apply, uh, supply and increase your storage of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. It's an important principle there. You'll be enriched. Jesus, now speaking, talking about riches. You will be enriched, but why? Why will you be enriched? So that you can be generous. When? Occasionally, when you feel inspired, around the holidays, when things are feeling good? No, on every occasion. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion occasion. In Jesus, we can become both advocates for economic equality and doers of it. We can have a heightened sensitivity toward the injustice around us. We can be more thoughtful about the products we purchase and how they are manufactured. We can be more sensitive to what and how we should buy in general, and we should be inspired about being thoughtful about every element of economics. And as we receive financial means ourselves, we can be thoughtful about how we return what we have to make a more equitable society and community. Listen, I hope that you become wealthy beyond measure. That'd be great. That'd be fantastic. But you are a steward of that wealth in a way that promotes economic equality. I mean, Paul basically said, it. hey, God wants to enrich us, but not so that you hoard. Hoarding is, is, is the problem. Sitting on, 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 on wealth, it, it's not what God has intended for us. I hope that you become wealthy. I hope that you challenge uh, Jeff Bezos. Who do we, we were talking before. Did we figure out who's... Elon, Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos are fighting it out. Oh, Every week it's new. They change back and forth. Something happens. I don't even know how this happens, but one is, one is more wealthy the other week. And then Bill Gates, you know, he, he's trying, but, you know, he's, he's falling behind, I think. I know. He's third place. 
I hope that you become wealthy beyond all measure, but you aren't hoarding that wealth. That's the problem. The rich that Jesus was condemning, it's the hoarding of this wealth and not being stewards. We are all called. And by the way, if you never become wealthy like that, that's the, the, the lot for most of us here. By the way, did you know, fun fact, 113 billionaires in New York City. It's just in New York City, we have 113 uh, uh, billionaires. It's the... That's right. That's absolutely right. Our neighborhood. In fact, it's actually down in the 70s. Uh, there is a building with the most billionaires uh, in it. And uh, so we, we like to hoard our, our billionaires here. I, I hope that you, 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 that you have resources. Uh, but whether you have billions of dollars, millions of dollars, or, or, or millions of, of cents, whatever you have, we're to be generous. We've got to fight against economic inequality, and it is at an obscene level in our broken world today. And so the good news is that God can do that in us. He can inspire our hearts. And so, yes, we should be working toward it in our civil structures, but we need heart change so that we are compelled to be advocates for those who are in need and for equality across the boards when it comes to economics in every, in every aspect, but in specific, this often not talked about issue of economic inequality. inequality. And so, Imagine a group of people like us, a community that is really committed to serving those who, who are in need, to, to, to spreading wealth around, not just in our community, but to see the city and, and our, our country and the world flourish because we are advocates for economic equality. May God do that in us. May he work in our hearts to give us that spirit and to help us to overcome that sense that we need to hoard and give us a spirit that we can be advocates for economic equality. May he do that in us today. Amen.